on the screen. Mark, Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Uh, we've been in a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark the last couple of months, and we're going to finish that next Sunday, take a break for a little while, and then come back in 2019, early spring, and finish up Mark. So that's our plan. Uh, so we've been in Mark, you know, for a few months, but we had a little break mixed in there for Mission Sunday. So about a month ago, we had Mission Sunday, we invited Phil Waldron, our missionary from Honduras, to come here and to preach. So when he's preaching, that means that whole week, I don't have this extreme deadline coming, I don't have to prepare a sermon. All right. So Friday night, I lay down to go to bed, the Friday night before Mission Sunday, and about midnight, as I was laying in bed with my thoughts, the thought crossed my mind, what do we do if Phil, who's come all the way from Honduras wakes up Sunday morning, and he's really sick, and he can't preach. And then I thought, well, that means it'd probably be my responsibility. And then I realized, as I'm laying in bed, I need to come up with some sort of backup sermon just in case. So I got out of bed at midnight, and from about midnight till 2 a.m., I opened up to Mark chapter 6, and I wrote out a tentative sermon. I wrote out a rough draft just in case I needed to preach. So Mark chapter 6, it has Jesus going to his hometown, he goes to Nazareth, and then he sends his disciples out on their, for what we know, their first mission trip. He sends them out two by two, so that would have fit the theme of Mission Sunday. And then we have John the Baptist and the story of how uh, he was beheaded and how that came to be. And then at the end of that, the disciples come back and report to Jesus about what they did on their mission journey. So I thought, okay, Mark 6 would work. I wrote a tentative sermon just in case. Well, that mission Sunday came and went. Phil was here. He wasn't sick. I didn't have to preach. So I took that sermon and I basically did away with it. I thought, okay, I'll come back to Mark 6 maybe another day, another time. But there was something in Mark chapter 6 that really just wouldn't let me go. I just kept thinking about these two verses from Mark chapter 6. And I want to start with... Those two verses this morning, Mark 6, verse 5 and 6. And maybe you'll see when we read this why they wouldn't let me go, why I kept thinking and why I kept coming back to these two verses. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he cured them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. Or the NIV says he was amazed at their lack of faith. So those two verses, I read them and I thought, well, what does that mean? But then when I thought I wasn't going to preach the sermon anymore, I just thought, well, maybe someday on down the line. But then I just kept thinking, wait a minute. His power is limited. He could do no deed of power, only a few little things in Nazareth. And then Jesus himself is amazed, but in a negative way, he's amazed at their unbelief or he's amazed at their lack of faith. So then I start thinking, as I study through Mark, what is this connection between faith and healing? When people come to Jesus, like the woman in Mark chapter 5 has been bleeding, he compliments her faith. So what does faith have to do with healing? And what does faith have to do with, or a lack of faith, have to do with preventing his power here? And what is faith? What does Mark mean by faith? What is faith to us? Is faith to us we believe in Jesus because we don't want to go to hell? So the alternative is being a Christian and that's better than Eternal life in hell? Is that what faith is to us? Is faith to us believing in Jesus uh, when we have times of trial or we want to be healed or we're sick and then all of a sudden our faith increases? Is that what faith is or is there more to faith than just that? So what does 
he mean here by Jesus being amazed at their unbelief or their lack of faith? I thought about Ricky Henderson. Does anybody know who Ricky Henderson is? Anybody remember him? If you're my age or older, you might remember him. A major league baseball player, played for the Oakland A's. As the story goes, you know, he grew up as a kid dreaming of becoming a millionaire someday. And his first paycheck he received from the Oakland A's was for $1 million. He was so proud of it, he framed it and he hung it on his wall in his living room. A few weeks went by and the front office for the Oakland A's called him and they said, did you not receive your check? And he said, I did. I was so proud of it, I framed it. And they said, well, could you take it out of the frame and take it to the bank and cash it, please? See, he thought he was a millionaire, but what he didn't realize is just possessing a check doesn't make you a millionaire. You have to actually cash it in. You have to take it to the bank. And in Mark chapter 6, one of the things that I realized just right away is it doesn't make you a faithful follower of Jesus just to grow up with him. You grow up in the same town, and in fact, it was kind of the opposite for the people of Nazareth. It doesn't make us faithful followers of Jesus just because we grow up going to church and we read our Bibles or pray every once in a while. So what is this faith that Mark is talking about? And I think the best way to understand it is to read the full context and to go back and look at Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And a lot of these verses will be up on the PowerPoint. Mark tells us he left that place and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. That statement, he came to his hometown, that's a loaded statement. There's a lot of emotions that can go along with that. How many of you are going to go to your hometown this week for Thanksgiving? Anybody? I'm raising my hand because I am. Okay, wow. There's Either you're not raising your hand or um, there's just a lot of you aren't going to your hometown. How many of you are already in your hometown right now? Okay, maybe that makes more sense. Uh, well, I'm not from here, so I go home to my hometown. So this next example may not make a lot of sense, but when you go to your hometown, you're filled with emotion. There's not a neutral emotion. Either there's great memories, and and in fact, maybe you build those memories up so high that you just feel so great being home, or maybe you go to your hometown and you're filled with anxiety and there's sad memories there, but there's really not a lot of neutral feelings when you go home. Jesus goes to his hometown, and he goes to synagogue, which is probably the equivalent of what we're doing right now, of church, a time of worship, and he's going to have the opportunity to stand before his own people, his hometown, and teach and preach. A few years ago, I was invited to preach at a gospel meeting at my hometown church, at the church that I grew up in. Some of you have no clue what a gospel meeting is, but if you remember what that is, it's when you, you have church more than just on Sundays and Wednesdays, you have church basically all week, and you bring in a, a guest speaker, or in this case, it was a different speaker each night. So my hometown church invited me to come speak one of those nights. We got there early. I went and ate with my family, and then we were going over to the church building, and I was going to get ready to preach, and my brother, who lives in Greenville, said to me, hey, don't mess it up. <laughs> and then he said, and don't use me in any of your stories. And I realize, you know, when you're preaching to your hometown church, there's a level of vulnerability there. But not just for me, not just for the preacher, but for my entire family as well, because I reflect them, and then I may have stories to share about them, and so they're a little antsy about that. And then after I preached, a friend of mine, his dad came up to me, known him my whole life, and he was real excited, and he said, hey, you know what, that wasn't too bad. And I was like... 
what'd you expect? Did you expect it to be awful? And he said, well, you got to realize there's some barriers I had to overcome. That I've known you since you were a little kid. So to view you now as a man who's up here preaching, I, I just had to get past that. And then be able to actually hear you as a preacher. And when Jesus goes to Nazareth, uh, that feeling is amplified. Because he's not just a preacher. He's a healer. He's a prophet. Something special is happening through Jesus. And he's going to his hometown. And there's some barriers that he has to get across. Starting in verse 2. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? So, in verse 2, they're admitting something special is happening through him. There is power there. There's authority there. Where did he get it from? They start questioning where this comes from. And then, in verse 3, they say, is this not the carpenter? There's a Greek word for carpenter, it's the word tekton, and it means carpenter, we can translate as carpenter, or maybe handyman. So what they know about Jesus is he's a tekton, he's a carpenter or a handyman, that means his dad, that was his trade, that was his profession, that's probably what Jesus learned growing up. And so what they're looking at is they're not looking at Jesus the prophet, the preacher, the healer, they're looking at Jesus the carpenter or the son of a carpenter. And then they say, this is the son of Mary. Which we know, okay, Mary is his mom. But what we may not catch in this is that that was an insult. You usually refer to someone as the son of, and then they would say his dad's name. So they should have said Joseph. And there's a lot of arguments. You know, maybe Joseph was, had passed away by this point. Or maybe they thought Jesus was an illegitimate child because of the virgin birth. We don't really know. But to say the son of Mary... They were insulting him. They're saying, we know you, we know your family's profession, we know your mom, and then and the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? They're like, we know you, we know your family, we know your siblings, we've seen you grow up here, and then it says, and they took offense at him. And it says, when Mark writes, they took offense at him, as I was reflecting on that this week, I thought, who is they? Does they represent everyone in the synagogue that day? Does they represent the whole town? Or does they just represent some of the prominent male leaders? Could there have been some people in the crowd that really did believe in the power of God at work in Jesus, but they just weren't bold enough to say anything? We see what's called a domino faith. Domino, if you ever line up dominoes, you ever do this, and then you knock them down, and then you can all watch them knock each other down, and then the whole stack is gone. So domino faith is, if A isn't true, then B can't be true, then C can't be true, and then it all comes crumbling down. And if that is how your faith system is, you grow up being taught something, or you believe something about the Bible or about God, and then you come to find out later, well... I have a different belief on that now, and if your faith system is entirely shattered by that, it's called a domino faith. For these people in Nazareth this day, they see the power of Jesus, they hear his teaching, but yet they say, but he can't come from God because we watched him grow up. We know his family, we know that he's a human being, so if this can't be true, then that can't be true, and it all just comes crumbling down for them, and they take offense at him. So Jesus responds in verse 4, and he said, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. 
So Jesus acknowledges that he's not the first prophet uh, to not be accepted by his own people, by his own home. He knows that. He expected that. And then we get back to verse 5 and 6. His power is limited there. This is these two verses that really gripped me. The reason why we're doing this sermon and going backwards in Mark this morning are because of these two verses. So he's at home. They take offense to him. He knows that. He expects it. And now his power is limited. He does do a few things. Laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. But Jesus himself was amazed at their their lack of belief. Their lack of faith. Um... He has limited power. I mentioned last Sunday morning that the first half of Mark, you take Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, go all the way to Mark chapter 8 and verse 26, that's the first half of Mark, and if you could describe Jesus in one word, it would be power. We see this dunamis, this Greek word in Jesus, this sheer raw power over nature, over disease, over demons, and everything he's displaying is power. But here, in Mark 6, there's a time where his power is limited. The people of Nazareth, you remember the parable that Jesus taught in Mark chapter 4, parable of the soils? I try to get a lot of you to memorize that, Mark chapter 4, verse 1 through 20. There's the sower scattering the seeds, and we find out later when he explains the parable that the seed is the word of God, and the soil are the ways that people receive the word. And one type of soil was that on the path, and the birds come and snatch it up, or maybe that's Satan come and snatching it up, and so there's no root that ever takes place, and the people of Nazareth are like that seed on the path. The birds come, snatch it away, and it never even takes root. And so Jesus, in verse 6, is amazed at their unbelief or their lack of faith. So one of the questions I have is, what does it mean they have a lack of faith? Where are they? They're in a synagogue. They're in a house of worship. They believe in a monotheistic God. They believe in inspired scriptures. They believe in the law. They try to keep the Torah. You know, they are people of faith, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have woke up that morning and gone to the synagogue. But yet, there was something about the way that they responded to Jesus that still showed that they had a lack of faith in God because of God. they're not believing in God's work. God's power at work in Jesus. So what I see from the people of Nazareth are there's really like three layers of unbelief. It's a progression. And it starts with this familiarity, right? They're so familiar with Jesus, they're so close to the situation that they can't receive him. They're too close to the situation, too familiar with him. I was reading a story earlier this week about a a lady, a mom, a high school English teacher, and she had two sons, and when they got to high school, they had to take her English class because it was a small school. She was the only English teacher for the grade that they were in, and they were completely embarrassed of their mom. So they said, I'm going to sit at the back of the class. Don't address me as your son all semester, and please don't bring up any stories from our home life. Because they just viewed her as mom, and for whatever reason, they were embarrassed of her. So they sat in the back of the class, and as the semester went on, they watched as all the other students loved their mom. They watched how all the students wanted their mom as a teacher because she was an effective teacher. She was a good teacher. So they started to see her through a different light. They had taken her for granted up until that point, 
And they didn't realize the talent and the gift that she had to offer the world because of familiarity. They were so familiar with her, so close to the situation, they took her for granted. And that's what the people of Nazareth are doing with Jesus. We've seen him grow up, we know his family, we know his mother, we know his profession. And they're so familiar, so close to the situation that they can't really see what God is doing through it. And there's a lesson to be learned in this. This is Thanksgiving week. A lot of you will probably, including myself, be around family, maybe more than you normally would be. And how often do we take for granted the people that are closest to us? Don't we do that? The people that maybe we see on a day-in, day-out basis or a week-in, week-out basis, we, we become so familiar with them But sometimes we don't stop and reflect and think about how blessed we are to have certain people in our lives. So maybe this week, part of your challenge could be to appreciate and to be fully present when you're with your family. And not to be so familiar with them that you take them for granted. And maybe we do this with Jesus also. Maybe we've been doing this church thing for a long time or reading our Bibles for a long time. Whatever that would be. And we're so close to the situation that we take him for granted. And I don't want to do that either. I don't want to have a Nazareth faith that starts with familiarity, but it leads to rejection. They rejected Jesus. They took offense at him. And if you look at the equivalent story in the Synoptic Gospels, you can look at Luke chapter 4, you can look at Matthew chapter 13, but especially Luke chapter 4, that not only are they offended by Jesus, but they're trying to drive him off a cliff. Like, they completely and totally reject him. And in the Gospel of Mark, this is not the first time that Jesus is rejected. If you think back to Mark chapter 3, over a month ago we did a sermon called, When You Put God in a Box. And we looked at Mark chapter 3, and there's two stories that are sandwiched together by Mark. And one of those is his own mother and brothers come to take him because they said he's out of his mind. And then the religious leaders claim that Jesus is able to do what he's doing because he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And that happens right after Jesus calls the twelve. So they're following him, and the purpose is to be with him and to be sent by him. And the first thing that they witness is Jesus being rejected by some of the people that should have been closest to him. And then in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus is getting ready to send his disciples out on a little mission trip, they witness this rejection again. Rejected by his family, rejected by religious leaders, rejected by his own hometown. And to me, that says something about God. That God makes himself vulnerable enough to be rejected. He doesn't force us to believe. He doesn't make us do it. God gives us, he gives us free will. And he gives us the option to choose him. And that's what love requires. And so he allows himself to potentially be rejected. Philip Yancey is this great Christian author. And uh, I was reading some comments that he made about how God has moved geographically over the years. You know, it started in the Middle East with Jesus. And then eventually Christianity was dominant in European countries and in the U.S. And most recently we have seen a faith decline in our own country and church attendance goes down and not as many people are believing in Jesus, but Christianity is spreading uh, in developing countries. 
So maybe in countries like our own, it's decreasing, but it's spreading in other places in the world. And he said, my theory is this, God goes where he's wanted. And the people of Nazareth reject him. And so he leaves. You know, just like the rich young ruler who walks away, Jesus lets him walk away. He gives people the choice. So it starts with familiarity, and then it moves to rejection. But this third layer here is this layer of, it's a deterrent. You know, if you're not familiar with that word, you could substitute the word preventative. That their faith, or their lack of faith, their unbelief, was a deterrent for God's power. Now think about that. Because they rejected Jesus, because they didn't believe in what was going on through him, God's power worked through him, they actually prevented people from being healed by Jesus. They prevented more people from hearing the gospel message that Jesus was preaching. It was their level of faith that was a deterrent for other people receiving Jesus. And so there's this, what I would call an atmosphere of faith. Often when we talk about faith, we're looking at the individual. We're looking at ourselves, like what level of faith do we have? And we can look at like Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 that describes what faith is. Or Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 that says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So we look at like the individual, but think about collectively, like church-wide. There is an atmosphere to faith. And if people are pessimistic and are doubting and struggling with whether or not God can move or act or work powerfully through us, then that will catch on in the atmosphere. But there's also a certain level of faith being inspirational or contagious that other people can pick up on. And as Christians, that's our aim. We want to have a contagious faith, a faith that inspires others. So it's the exact opposite of the people of Nazareth. Their faith limited God's power, but we want to have a kind of faith that encourages other people to be faithful. Uh, I was talking to Leonard earlier this week, and he was telling me about this rule called the first follower rule. There's a YouTube video about it. And it's about leadership, and you know, you can have a great leader, and you could be bold in your leadership, but when people really start following, and when there's momentum that picks up, is that first follower. The first person willing to follow, and then other people follow the first follower. So I told him, I was reminded of a time when I was in youth ministry. Um, it was when cell phones were really starting to take over, and every kid had a cell phone, and it was so distracting that I came up with this idea, and I put a cell phone box in the middle of the youth room. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do from now on. This is the cell phone box. You don't have to put your phone in here. This is an option for you. If you feel like your phone is going to be distracting, distracting put it in here, pick it up 45 minutes later, and it's fine. Said, but you don't have to put it in here, but if you don't put the phone in here, and then I catch you on your phone during class, I'm going to ask you to leave and go sit with your parents in the auditorium which I didn't know if I really had the, the boldness to actually kick them out of class, but I was threatening them with that. So I put the box out, and I said, okay, that's up to you now. And I just sat there in this, what felt like three minutes of just awkward silence, of nobody moving, and I knew that in doing this, they may not follow, they may not do this at all. And then one of our older teenagers at the time, his name was Joseph, he got up, walked across the room, 
put his phone in the box. And then I watched as the next 30 seconds as every other student got up and put their phone in the box. It wasn't because of me that they did that. It was because they watched Joseph do it. He was the first follower in doing this. And once he did it, it was contagious. It was inspiring to others. And so they got up and they did the same thing. And it is so true that there is an atmosphere to faith that we imitate each other. We mirror each other. And so we want to live a life that is the complete opposite of what we see in Nazareth. Is that we're so familiar with Jesus, we don't take him for granted. But we live every day and every moment, even in the small things, as faithful as possible. Not just because we know we'll have to give an account before God someday, but because we want to inspire others to live faithfully. All the way back in Mark chapter 2, there's a story uh, that I kind of just glossed over a few months ago. And I'm going to gloss over it again, but I am going to point out one verse. Uh, There was a paralyzed man, and Jesus was in town. He's preaching in a house. Crowds are huge, and everybody's pressing in on this house, and they can't get this man to Jesus. They put him on a mat, and if you remember the story, they climb up on the roof, they tear a hole in the roof, and then they lower this guy through the roof to the feet of Jesus. So they go out of their way to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus. And then he heals the man, but before he heals the man, he forgives his sins, which actually causes a lot of controversy. But what has always stood out to me is Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. And the way Mark words it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, when Jesus saw the faith, not of the paralyzed man, but of his friends, he forgave the paralyzed man's sin. When when he saw their faith, Jesus himself was inspired by someone else's faith. That's our aim. That's our goal, is to live the kind of life where we inspire others. It's contagious. The atmosphere is these are faithful people who believe that God can work. I don't think that in Mark chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, that if we were able to take some application to our world today, that we'd say, well, you just need to believe harder or you won't get sick anymore. You know, we know that we still get sick and and people still die. and, And the people that Jesus healed, they still died eventually. I think the purpose in what Mark is sharing with us is how negative that can be when so many people have a lack of faith. But he's also showing it was what it can be like if a lot of people have a contagious, inspirational type of faith. So who is inspiring your faith? Whose faith are you inspiring? I'm going to commit myself this week to be present with my family, to not take them for granted because I'm so familiar with them. I'm going to commit myself to be present before Jesus and not take him for granted. I'm going to commit myself in all the small ways to be as faithful as possible so that I might encourage someone else. This morning we're going to sing a few more songs. We're going to have shepherds around this room ready to receive you if you need prayers. If you're ready to become a follower of Jesus, you know, we, can, we have this baptistry here. Where we are more than willing to do that or set up a time to talk with you further. I want to invite you to stand up, and Kate's going to come back up here and lead us in a few more songs.
Beautiful beyond description.